Today's edition of the Locked On Nets podcast, Josh Bass, Marcus Bearhall break down game two of the Brooklyn Nets and Philadelphia 76ers first round series, including how the Nets can stop Boban and Joel Embiid, Spencer Dinwiddie's performance, and should Joel Embiid have been kicked out for his flagrant foul? All that and more on Locked On Nets. You are Locked On Nets, your daily Brooklyn Nets podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome in to the Locked On Nets podcast, your daily home for coverage of our beloved Brooklyn Nets. I am your host, Josh Bass. I'm a lifelong fan of the Brooklyn Nets franchise dating back to their first finals run as the New Jersey Nets. Uh, and joining me to talk about Game 2 of the NBA playoffs, unfortunately, we are not in person and not in as, a, in as much of a celebratory mood as we were after Marcus Berhal. Yeah, I wonder if those two things are connected, actually. I wonder if us being together maybe brought the Nets some magic. Who, who knows? Yeah. Well, yeah. we'll see for Game 3. We'll it's a good point. Yeah, we are, we are going to that game, so, so maybe, maybe that swings the, the series. Yeah, no, it, it really could. We might have to just watch every Nets game together. Um, for good or bad, you'll come with me on my trips. I'll I'll come in third wheel when you visit your girlfriend in Florida. It'll be great. Yeah, we can hang out at each other's uh, places of employment. Who knows? Yeah, no, it's good. I, I'm kind of liking this, uh, Marcus. I didn't like this Nets game. We're actually recording it uh, right now when there's still five minutes to go. The Nets are currently down 131 to 107. Um, really entertaining first half. The Nets were down by one going into the break, and really, Philly just came out guns blazing. 21-2 to run to start the third quarter. Scored 51 points in that third quarter. I thought it took a long time for Kenny to uh, make any sort of timeouts or adjustments, Um, and really, by the time he did, the game was kind of in hand for Philly. Yeah, I agree with that, and uh, you kind of saw the exact opposite from the Philly side, where... Uh, the Nets put Rondé in for a stretch there in the third quarter, and it actually worked a little bit. Like, the Brooklyn cut it to, I think, 14 or 15, yeah. but then Brett Brown called a timeout, and so yeah. that kind of stopped things right there, which, I mean, there was a point uh, where early in the third quarter, Philly had pushed it to, I think it was eight, and I kind of thought they were going to call a timeout. I think Reggie Miller even mentioned it in the broadcast, and Kenny let it play out, whereas, I guess, I mean, not that Brett Brown's, like, been, like, out coaching him in the first two no, years of the series no. or anything, but I think that was, like, the right move to kind of stop the momentum and i don't know it kenny just didn't do it yeah well brett brown was trying to do his popovich impersonation by as soon as a team scores <laughs> the basket he uh he calls a timeout yeah i mean it was kind of tough just because usually like you don't um you don't like see a, a timeout kind of after random stoppages in play but that's the nets are really losing composure we had that d'angelo russell um uh, clear path foul a couple bad turnovers and it's like these are times where you could have considered calling timeouts after that but usually we see teams call timeouts after there's a big three or change of momentum and it was kind of just more gradual and it really hit a crescendo um, when guys like Mike Scott and Tobias Harris were just bombing away from three yeah uh, Mike Scott the x-factor he also hit that buzzer beater at the yeah. end on the mm-hmm. little floater on the putback but yeah it just felt like uh, I don't know what changed in the third quarter I think it was that uh, part of it was that in the first half, Brooklyn uh, was only down by one, but they were like hitting everything from deep, mm-hmm. and then that like didn't really continue in the second half. And obviously, that's not to be expected. And it's kind of, again, kind of the opposite of Game One, where uh, we talked about how the Nets were up early despite D'Lo playing poorly, 
Whereas in this game, they were right in it despite shooting like lights out, which is not a good sign. Yeah. So I think yeah. that kind of just like came back to earth. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. The three-point shooting was so good. Spencer Dinwiddie started three of three from the three-point line. D'Lo was hitting his pull-ups, but no one else was really contributing too much. Joe Harris, very uncharacteristic of him. There was uh, a play really pretty indicative of this game early on in the first quarter. He had a wide-open three, missed it. The Nets got the offensive rebound. It was another Joe Harris wide-open three, and he missed that, and then came down next time down the court, wide-open mid-range two, and he missed it. He just didn't have it going tonight. Damari Carroll hit a couple threes but looked a little sluggish. Rody, I thought, actually had some really nice moments on offense and defense. But when you look at the Nets' starting lineup, they just can't compete with Philly. And I'm thinking there might be some sort of adjustment that could be made to provide more balance between the uh, bench unit and the starting lineup that the Nets have. Yeah, do you think that's more in terms of Dinwiddie, or do you think that's uh, giving Davis some more time, assuming his ankle's okay for Game 3? Yeah, I mean, I thought Davis looked fine. He was maybe slightly hobbled, but definitely still uh, could be a big contributor. I just don't think—I think he's a big upgrade on Jarrett Allen, but I don't think it's going to make a huge difference in the series. I think it has to change structurally with having Dinwiddie join D'Lo in the starting lineup, because even though both these guys are going to play a lot, you need them to each play— 30 to 32 minutes a night if you're going to have a chance uh, of beating Philly three more times. So Dinwiddie's really been the main guy for the Nets that's been able to get it going. He was draining everything from three at the start. When he got cold from three, he was really going to the basket well and just fearless attacking Boban. So I think he's going to be the guy that the Nets have to ride and hope that he can have uh, a big 30-point game or, or two down the line. Definitely, and he's killed Philly all year, and that's really continued in these two games. He just seems like he's in complete control Whenever he has it, he knows like to take his time and kind of get the big guy on the switch, and then he can just blow by him kind of at will. And mm-hmm. it's interesting because it felt like all three of the Nets guards were doing that in the in the uh, first game of the series, and they were like targeting Redick especially and getting him in foul trouble, going straight at the big guys. And it felt like this was a little bit more rushed, at least in the third quarter, in terms of like just like attacking without necessarily taking the time, I guess. Yeah, I, I don't, I'm not sure exactly kind of what changes Philly made, if any. I think that um, they were they were just doing a bit maybe more aggressive on their pick-and-roll coverage, not giving the Nets guys uh, a free release necessarily. But yeah, I mean, besides Dinwiddie, no one was really consistently contributing for the Nets. And I think looking at D'Angelo Russell's first two games, it hasn't been uh, the most efficient of nights. He's scored 16 points uh, this game on 16 shots, I think. Uh, Last game was 26 points on 25 shots, so kind of right around that one point per shot, which is slightly uh, less efficient than you'd like. And I think for him, he's getting good looks, especially for mid-range. He's just not converting. And, you know, as the uh, playoffs get more more intense, obviously, than the regular season would be, those shots that used to be wide open for mid-range, now they're slightly more contested, and that can make a difference sometimes. Yeah, and I think just to go back to what Philly's done defensively, I think the biggest difference in this game was that Simmons was just way more engaged, both on and off ball. I thought he was, like, tracking guys really well. He was denying D'Lo the ball a ton. And Redick also, like, he obviously isn't the best on-ball defender, but he's really fast, and he was denying Joe Harris a ton. And I think he really, like, helped to shut him down in this game. So I think that Philly definitely made adjustments. I do think that the Nets still have places to go, especially if Dudley... Uh, can get back into it because I think he does provide problems uh, defensively for Philly or like from the Nets defensive side against Philly's offense because that was the biggest thing in the third quarter obviously if Philly's going to score 51 points in a quarter like that's tough to tough to beat 
Yeah, I think like it's crazy to me that Dudley is such an X factor, um, but he really is important because he's one of the few nets, especially um, in the front court. He might be the only net that's extremely smart defensively and can compete with these behemoths like a Joel Embiid and a Boban and also be able to uh, hit threes and also have the respect of being guarded out from three. And that's huge. We saw his dribble drive game has really paid dividends for the Nets uh, since since he's been playing more. And I think that he could really, I mean, they need him to play at least 20 minutes a night. So he had that sore right calf. Hopefully he can be better for game three. Um, but he brings a unique skill set that really no one else on this Nets team has. And they just really need him because he is the heart and the soul. And he changed the game in game one, even though the box score didn't necessarily reflect it. Yeah, he just like his defense on Simmons, especially. I think I saw a stat on Twitter today where it was something like Simmons had, I think, 23 possessions against Dudley as the primary defender, and he didn't really score on any of them. So I think he's going to be huge because Rody, I think he's good, but he's a little over aggressive. He committed five fouls in the 22 minutes he played in this game. He also just doesn't uh, have, I think he's. He'll get there in a couple of years. He just doesn't have the frame to, to really compete. Yeah, he, he's long, but he's like pretty skinny, like similar to Allen in that way. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And I think that the Nets just need some bigger wings that they don't have. I mean, they need a guy like Travion Graham, but Travion Graham being like two or three inches taller. They don't have anyone that can fit the, the Jimmy Butler, Ben Simmons, Tobias Harris. Even you look at Philly's bench, guys like Jonathan Simmons, James Ennis, Jonah Bolden, these are all guys that physical profile-wise would be really useful for the Nets, but uh, alas, maybe Sean Marks will find someone this offseason that can fit that profile. We'll take a break, and then coming up, we'll talk about how the Nets can stop the duo of Joban and Bidovich, the dominant center duo for Philly. We got a new sponsor for the pod, y'all, and that is our friends at Wise. W-Y-Z-E, but they call it WISE because it's a WISE camera. It is the indoor camera that does it all. It's packed with premium features that allows you to see everything in your house from anywhere for only $20. Uh, Images so clear you won't miss a thing, they have it. Night vision, they have it. Two-way audio, 1080 full HD, they got it all. WISE's mission is to cut out the channel fat by selling directly from their own website. They want to bring amazing smart home products accessible to everyone. Uh, check in your home anytime with Wise's app live stream. Important to note that is a free rolling 14-day cloud storage on these cameras, as well as no subscriptions. For $20 a camera, you can do anything. You can watch your kids destroy your house. Marcus, I'm not sure if you have any kids recently that I don't know about, but you could watch them destroy your I house. Do not. You can do bird watching. Um, really, you can do it all. I can watch my roommates fight without uh, when I'm not there, and I love watching them fight. So um, that's kind of going to be my big draw. And for just $10 more, Wise Cam Pan gives you 360-degree coverage in under three seconds. Life moves fast. Your camera should, too. Uh, go to wise.com slash locked. That's W-Y-Z-E dot com slash locked to get the guaranteed lowest price. I teased it at the end of the last segment. That's why I am a true professional. Uh, but let's talk about Joban and Bidovich, a.k.a. Joban the Hut. Who, uh, and they combined for, what they combined for? 40 or 39 points on 16 of 26 from the field. Uh, 18 rebounds between them. Boban, in particular, in that first half, was just draining that same free throw line jumper 
time after time. And when you have a guy like Boban, who's kind of like a mascot almost, in that the crowd gets as hype for a Boban mid-range jumper than they would for like a highlight dunk. Because they're as soon as he catches the ball at the free throw line with no one like super close to him, they're just they're just an anticipation rising. And they love this guy so much. And I feel like he's actually giving them a ton of momentum with his like mundane plays. Yeah, he's definitely like a real energy guy and a guy that like pretty much everyone roots for. I think even like you and I who are not rooting for Philly in this series, like you kind of smile when Bobon's like hitting those jumpers just because it's so absurd. But yeah, the the, the duo of what'd you call them? Joban and Joban and Bidovich. Okay, yeah. Hopefully that sticks. Um they've definitely been a tough matchup for Brooklyn. And I think uh, Allen has struggled. Uh, Davis played well in the first game, but obviously didn't really play much at all in this game. I think that the the going small has kind of been the Nets' best option, like going small and also at Davis in game one. But I think that that's kind of, assuming Dudley's healthy, that's kind of the way to go, in my opinion. Yeah, but they're they're dropping back on him, but also there's times when they're still giving up the offensive rebound. And I feel like if, I don't know, the... the if you're playing small, if you're playing a Dudley, if you're playing an RHJ on Boban, then they have to go up and try to bother him uh, and try to force some sort of pressure and get up right on him. But even when RHJ was in the game, he was dropping all the way back. And Boban's hitting those shots at a two-thirds clip at this point, and it's giving the Philly crowd something to cheer about. And I think what I've seen from the Philly crowd these first two games is that they're a bandwagon. They're a bandwagon fan base in terms of. They're very of, fickle. Yeah, when it's going poorly, they're booing. When it's going well, they're over the top. So you can't give them anything to cheer about when it comes to Game Five, and especially if it's two-two going into that game, uh, the Nets cannot let them build any sort of momentum, and that's what was happening. You know, Boban was hitting his mid-range jumpers. Ben Simmons was doing his thing where he just brought the ball up super fast, uh, like curled off to the wing, and then dished it off to. Uh, a cutter, whether it be Tobias Harris or J.J. Redick, they were making a lot of flash plays and just kind of uh, charging in full throttle, and the Nets got punched in the mouth straight up. Um, but yeah. I think they handled it really well in the first half, but once that third quarter punch came, they just couldn't deal with it. You know, it took so much out of them when uh, Joel Embiid just did that forearm, that that, that elbow shiver right into uh, to Jarrett Allen. I thought and that was a flagrant too, by the way. I, did I you? Yeah, let's, let's talk about this. Because yeah, sure. That was probably that was one of the most pivotal moments of the series, probably uh, when, yeah. when it's gonna be all said and done. Because a lot of people think Embiid uh, should have gotten called for a flagrant two. I don't know; it's borderline for me. I th- I think I would lean towards flagrant one, just because I don't think it was uh, malicious. No, I, I guess not. But I, I guess just seeing, like, uh, I don't know if you saw, but in the Detroit game, Andre Drummond got ejected, and mm-hmm. it was just like. I don't know. This series is definitely well, that was intentional, testy. right? When Andre Drummond pushed Giannis. Yeah, it's just it's it's tough to say like what's intentional with this Embiid thing because like, I mean I know at uh, at halftime Shaq and Charles Barkley were kind of like arguing about whether or not Embiid threw the elbow on that play or not. I thought he did a little bit. I don't think it was like a full on like I'm going to elbow this guy in the mouth. I think it was just mm-hmm. like I'm swinging my elbow and if he's there then I'll hit him. Right. So right. I, I think it was borderline, but then. The fact that right after it they called the flagrant one on uh, Kuruks against uh, against Simmons, I thought that that kind of was like I don't know because those didn't seem equal to me. Yeah, yeah, that was soft. I don't know. I and I know our boy Christian Winfield's going to get mad yeah. at me because he thought it it was a flagrant, um, but I do not think it should have been a flagrant on on Rody. When they started reviewing it, I was shocked. I was like, it should have just been a common uh, off ball foul. But yeah, I see what you're saying because Embiid's was just so much worse than Rody's, but they're getting the same punishment. 
Right. I thought, like, if, if the Embiid one was a flagrant one, I thought that the roadie one should be a common foul. I mean, like, personally, I would have said that the roadie one could be a flagrant one and the Embiid one's a flagrant two, but I, I think that they're definitely different levels. Yeah. How do you think Embiid looked in general? Because coming into this game, he was still questionable with his knee. I think we all expected him to play, especially after he played game one uh, while being listed as doubtful. But uh, I thought he looked a bit more mobile than he did in, in uh, game one. Yeah, and zero three-point attempts. So, I mean, the Nets were still daring him to shoot. He just was kind of, uh, when he was given that space, he kind of gave like a pump fake that no one bid on Mm -hmm. and then just like took one big dribble and then was like at the elbow posting up. So I think that was definitely a good adjustment uh, on his part and on Brett Brown's part. Um, Yeah, I thought he definitely looked better. And uh, defensively, I thought he looked more mobile. You talked about it. Uh, He had that like, could have been called a block, but they called it a foul on uh, the Karis LeVert. Mm. dunk attempt in the second quarter so yeah that was nice he definitely looks a little better and uh i don't know with two days off maybe he'll be even more fresh for that next game but i think he might have still been on a minutes restriction i I know it wasn't like talked about before game one but after the fact brett brown was saying that he kind of was on one in game one which makes you think that he probably was still on one in this game he played 21 minutes obviously it was a blowout and he had five fouls but i still think that he probably is somewhat limited yeah do you i i agree with that i don't think he's ever going to Crack 30 minutes in the series um but when you look at kind of the, how the Nets are defending Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid do you think they should be applying more ball pressure I mean they're playing so far off these guys but it's allowing these really athletic freaks of human nature to get ahead of steam and kind of just barrel into the paint where guys like Jared Allen and Rody Kuritz are kind of defenseless and they're they're committing foul after foul I think it was more about communication in this game because in game one they did a good job of like giving that space but then when Simmons kind of like ran full steam ahead and then looked to kick out they recovered onto the shooters really well and I thought in this game uh Scott and Reddick both got good looks off of like kickouts which did not happen in game one so I think giving them space is fine as long as there's communication in terms of like who's going to rotate where mm-hmm. yeah and the one thing I'll say that we'll talk I'll talk a little bit about the net three-point defense you know they held the Sixers to three of 25 in game one and in game two, the Sixers had a ton of open looks, and they still only shot nine of twenty-three from three. You know, this is not just this is just isn't a good three-point shooting team. And a few of those attempts were the were Jonah Bolden garbage time. I get it, but even still, they're not a team that takes a ton of volume on three. So I think um, the the Nets really just have to kind of think through how they can sure up their uh, paint defense. Boxing out is going to be key. Uh, and it's tough against the Sixers team where they're just so overwhelming from a physical standpoint. But uh, they'll have to they'll have to do their best. And I think having Jared Dudley back would help if he's healthy, Marcus. And we'll get into this a bit more in our preview podcast, which we'll uh, record Wednesday night. But who, what do you see as kind of the ideal Nets rotation moving forward? Would it be something similar to Game One, or do you think they should uh, mix things up a bit with having Dimwitty in the starting lineup, as I mentioned before? Um, I think. Similar to game one, but I, I would give Dinwiddie more minutes. I think he's clearly shown that he just like knows how to attack this defense, and he's done a really good job of it. I think that with Philly, like they kind of were forced to go small at one point in game one. I think they were playing uh, Mike Scott at center, maybe, mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. They were not playing like Boban and or... And also. Yeah, not playing Boban or Embiid at certain points, and I think that was because of Jared Dudley. So I think he's clearly uh, the X-factor going forward if he's healthy because that kind of like forces Philly to kind of go away from what they're used to and if they're playing small you just said that they're not a good three-point shooting team so if they're small and they can't shoot then that's kind of just like I don't know like a team of Rondes so 
think they are the Nets oh, would boy. take that. Oh, boy. <laughs> yep, that, uh, we would definitely take a team of five Rondé Hollis Jeffersons. Um, that's going to do it for this edition of the Locked On Nets podcast. Wanted to get you guys something quick right after the game. You can find the podcasts on the Himalaya podcast app. Of course, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple. And when you get in your car, say, hey, Alexa, play podcast Locked On Nets. Uh, and please subscribe to the podcast. We are at Locked On Nets on Twitter as well. If you want to follow us there, Marcus is at Marcus Barahal. I am at JM Bass underscore. You know, we didn't get the result that we wanted, but, uh, you know, we, we did take one in Philly. The, um, it's a five-game series. Yeah, five-game series with Nets us home having court. home court. Yeah. I like the way that sounds. Uh, I think that it was a little bit disheartening. I wish that the Nets had lost game one one and one game two in retrospect because now i'm gonna have to be sad the next few days but i think the effort that they're gonna have in game three is gonna be phenomenal and you know barclays is gonna be rocking we'll be there yeah we'll be helping rocket we will be helping rocket uh doing our best uh maybe we'll we'll go down and try to sit beside mr whammy and, and do some free throw <laughs> voodoo uh on on philly but until next time be well bye